Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who binge on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michelle Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, where we talk about historical films and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Listen to past episodes and sign up for our newsletter on our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to stay up to date on new episodes and bonus content. Our guest for this podcast is Jan Turnquist, Executive Director of Orchard House in Concord, Massachusetts. Jan Turnquist is the Emmy Award-winning writer-director of the documentary Orchard House, Home of Little Women. Since 1999, she has been Executive Director of Louisa May Alcott's Orchard House, Where Little Women was written and set. Jan has also shared the Alcott legacy in internationally acclaimed Alcott Living History portrayals. Recreations of Orchard House can be seen in recent adaptations of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, the 2017 BBC PBS Masterpiece Limited series, and the 2019 film directed by Greta Gerwig. Though Orchard House is most notable as the home where Louisa May Alcott wrote and set Little Women in 1868, the house's history stretches back two centuries before the novel was published, all the way to 1650, predating the Alcott's residency. Fans of Little Women and Louisa May Alcott know that the March family is inspired by Louisa's own sisters and parents. The Alcott's, Father Bronson, Mother Abigail May, and sisters Anna Alcott Pratt, Louisa May Alcott, Elizabeth Sowell Alcott, and Abba Abigail May Alcott Nyriker were a famous yet flawed family who firmly believed in the power of unconditional love, personal agency, and social justice. This family made impacts in literature, education, philosophy, art, reforms of all kinds, and each other. Orchard House has enjoyed more than 100 years of life as a treasured historic landmark and monument to Louisa May Alcott. Orchard House is open to the public today where visitors can go back in time to the world of the Alcotts, as well as Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy March. Jan, welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Thank you so much. It's a delight to meet you both. Yeah, we're both fans of Little Women and Louisa May Alcott, so this is very special for us to be talking with you. And since we've visited Orchard House, we'd like to even know more about what's going on there. But for those people who don't know about Orchard House, um, give us more details about its relationship to Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Well, as you accurately described, <clears throat> Louisa sat in the upstairs bedroom at a little desk that looks just like a shelf, but it was her desk that her father built for her. And her mother had given her a pen that said, may this pen your muse inspire when wrapped in pure poetic fire. So here she sat, she wrote a lot of things way before she wrote Little Women, but because she had served as a nurse in the Civil War and she was brought back to that house, to Orchard House, to try to recover, and she did. She did largely recover, although she still had health problems for the rest of her life. Um, but because she had written about that experience and it was published in a book called Hospital Sketches, then she was asked to write a realistic story about her girlhood. Hospital Sketches was the first reality writing, as she called it. Before that, she had written lots of fiction. 
but this hospital sketches book was fictionalized but based on her nursing experience so the idea was do the same thing about your girlhood and the fact that she sat down at that little shelf desk to do that and not knowing that it would change all of their lives because it made their fortune it it made everyone uh, just aware of what a girl could be she was bold and basing it on her real family the fact that she did that in that house just thrills people because they love the book and they feel like this is coming closer to touching the book and they feel like they're walking through the book because we still have all throughout the house well over probably over 80 percent but we we've never quite exactly figured the percentage but we have virtually everywhere you look you see their real belongings louise's real belongings so you're walking through their lives and she used that house as the setting so in a way people say they feel like they're walking through the book so they have these strong ties to something that for many 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 people who come uh it's something that meant everything to them growing up some of the stories we hear they just they stop you in your tracks they're so powerful about personal connections that people have with the book little women i know it was very special for me to see louisa may alcott's writing desk i i felt i, I had made this pilgrimage just to see the desk and i didn't know it was there and still you know available for visitors to see my next question is about how you were introduced to the book, Little Women. For Tequina and I, we were introduced to the book by our mother, who um, there was this abridged illustrated copy that she had in the house. I don't know how I got there, but we... Um, she purchased it at the Five and Dime. Oh, that's where I she got that. it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for those who don't know what a Five and Dime is... <laughs> There were these stores where you could buy things. Well, by the time even when we were around, they weren't five cents or a dime anymore, but they we still called it the five a dime. Pre-Walmart. Pre-Walmart. <laughs> That's okay. right. That's right. And yeah. Target. <laughs> so, Jan, tell us how you were introduced. Well, my story is very, very small and simple in that um, I, I was a very big reader. I loved going to story hour at the library, and I took out lots of books from the library. And the children's librarian really knew me well. And she's the one who one day with this look on her face, you know, she was so excited. She said, I, I want to introduce you to something very special. I think you're ready for this now. And she took me over to a bookshelf that had little women on it. And it's just as a side note, um, and I remember her so well, it's Mrs. Benedict, um, or I think it was really pronounced Bredendick, but we all kind of messed it up. Um, she later left her position as a children's librarian and taught school, and she was my high school English teacher one year. <laughs> so we had a, a continuing relationship, um, but she's the one who introduced me to the woman. Yeah. Let's hear it for librarians. And Yay, English for the librarians and English teachers. Yes. And mothers. And mothers, yes. So one of the things that strikes us is very interesting is that a novel that was published in 1868 about four uh, girls, young women coming of age, still resonates so strongly with girls today. And I mean, we're, we're in very different, different times. There are just all these dystopian novels. There's, you know, we have these, uh, you know, uh, illustrated or I forget with graphic novels, et cetera. And yet little women, I mean, there are even debates about who's the best Joe and who has the best version of the film and what it meant to people. And we have people writing adaptations around Little Women. So, Jen, what do you think is the continuing appeal of Louisa May Alcott's novel? Well, one thing that made me really delve into this question early on was understanding how many people from around the world love the book. So it's not based on culture. 
you know, it's a New England story. But the people of Japan love that book and their culture and society couldn't be too much more different from what's depicted in Little Women. So that made me start to think about it a lot. But the conclusion that I reached then, I think, is the conclusion I've still kept, but I've broadened it. So what I noted about the Japanese readers early on was to think it's largely about family. And around the world, people are in families. And sometimes their families are less than ideal, and they long for something like what they read about in Little Women. It's not a perfect family. There are lots of problems, but they stick together. They care about each other. They love each other. They try to do good for other people. And, you know, for most of us, some point as a child, usually, I think, but certainly hopefully by adulthood, we realize that there's a lot of joy to be had if you're kind to other people. Good to be kind to your family members. Sometimes you have some fallout and <laughs> you come around again and you realize, well, we're, we're, we're not going to stay with the bad stuff. Let's just move on. And then you remember all the good things too. And then you find, well, I can do that with other people. I can do that with my neighbors. I can do that with this stranger over here. And the Alcots were such good examples of that, that Louisa embedded that whole philosophy in Little Women. But it's very natural. It doesn't feel like somebody's preaching to you very much, sometimes maybe a little, but mostly she's really just reporting her own girlhood. And so it's real, it's from her heart. And I think that is such a strong pull for people. It, they identify with that. Um, so I, I initially was thinking about people in Japan feeling that way. Uh, but then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, that's, that's true for people everywhere. And I, I think that's it. I, I had a very funny thing happen years ago. I was in this little um, sort of a, it was a presentation that I was not presenting anything. It was actually a contest of people had won. Um, they wrote about why is Joe March still relevant today? That was the title. And these were the winners of the contest who were going to be presenting along with the judges who had given them the prize. And um, my son, who at that time must have been around eight, played Little League. And I really wanted to be at this presentation um, and couldn't pick him up from Little League. So a friend said, oh, I'll bring him back. You know, and so dropped him off. And he comes in to this group of women, largely, in his little league uniform, the little black things under his eyes that I always thought was funny because I think they just did it for show. I don't think that did a thing. And he's walking in his little league uniform when the question that you just asked was posed to the group and anybody in the group was to give their idea. His hand shot up. He was walking in the room when he heard the question and his hand shot up. And his simple answer, they called on him because it's about family. So there it is. That was my conclusion. That was his conclusion. I don't know. Seems pretty strong to me that that's it. It yeah. works. Yeah, it's definitely a universal experience, whether, you know, it's a happy family, a sad family, a difficult family, and the marches were all of the above. And, and I also think about um, particularly the character of Joe, but when you look at the Alcott sisters, that the Alcott family being um, the March family being a little bit of outsiders in, in a way in their society, which definitely re reflects the Alcotts too um, with their, their progressive ideas. So I guess those things just continue to resonate through the generations. Yes. And as well, the, the fact that if you stand up for what you believe and that makes you unpopular or it makes you have a greater struggle, that that, that encourages a person to do that. And I think many, many of the readers of Little Women who have stayed so tied to the book have appreciated that because yeah. they've been through something. It's different for a lot of people, but it often has to do with what's internal not matching something on the outside of society with your friends or somebody 
doesn't understand why you're standing up the way you are for something. And, and the Alcotts were very, and the March family, were very much that way. So that's part of it too, I think. Yeah. And, and sometimes we forget that this story is set against the backdrop of the Civil War, the American Civil War, which creeps into the family from time to time and disrupts things. And also there comes to the resolution after the war is over. It's still disruptive because uh, we talk about Meg getting married. Um, The father comes home or the mother leaves when the father is in the hospital. So I think that's something that people sometimes forget, but um, in ways makes the novel transcend its times. Yes, I think that that that's an important point. It's in that book, it's about the Civil War and its father who goes off. But if you know the real story of the family, it was Louisa who went to war. Bronson was really too old. But it's the same concept that someone is gone and is scary. Something, a lot of unknowns are, are engendered by that war. And we still have that today. It isn't always a war. Sometimes it is a war. Um, And we have military personnel going off all the time to do things that put themselves in harm's way. Or we have our local, um, you know, first responders. All kinds of things make life uncertain. So when you look at that Civil War uncertainty, you can tie it right into your own uncertainties today. Many different levels of it. Let's talk about the screen adaptations, because I get the feeling most people are introduced to Little Women from the films, especially today. Many 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 people. people. The gateway to the novel, yes. The gateway to the novel. So the most recent adaptations of Little Women, uh, the 2017 BBC Masterpiece series directed by Vanessa Caswell, and the more recent 2019 film adapted and directed by Greta Gerwig, both and others feature exteriors of Orchard House. And you you explained to us um, before we started recording that it wasn't the original Orchard House, but it was a fantastic replica of the Orchard House (laughs) in these films. In your capacity as executive director, how are you working with screenwriters, directors, the cast, the crews, the designers, the creative teams who come to Orchard House? And what has been the impact of these films on your work and on the landmark house in telling the story of Louisa May Alcott and the Alcott family, and of course, the novel? <laughs> well. For the BBC and and it was um, uh, PBS combined, they worked together uh, production. I first met Vanessa Caswell, and um, she's the director, as you mentioned, and and her executive producer came together to Concord. They they flew in um, both of them from England, although the filming took place in Ireland. Um, but they came to just understand. They wanted to see the house. They wanted to understand the town and so on. And I spent a lot of time with them. One of the things that was humorous at first was they showed me some, they knew it was going to be filmed in Ireland. So they showed me some little photographs of various houses that they were thinking, well, we could use this for such and such house and this other one for something else. And um, the houses were, they looked like very small castles. Uh, especially, you know, for, for the wealthier families' homes. So I was explaining that there's really nothing in New England that looks like that, and certainly not in Concord. And so I drove them around town, and I showed them, and they, they had questions like, well, how are they going to have a dance in that house? It isn't very big. And I'd say, well, what they would have done, it was a big house for a family to live in, but what they would do for a, a party was they would actually, the wealthier people would have people come in and move the furniture out 
and they'd have the, the parlor and the dining room probably combined would be the big area of dancing and so on. Well, all of this was just a shock to them. They just, none of it. Was, so they decided after we met a few times, they stay overnight a, a few nights and um, they said, well, could you come to Ireland? Because we really don't know how we're going to make this look like New England. And so I spent a long time. It was a wonderful experience for me. I met all of the actors. I was living in the same hotel with them. We ate together. Um, I met with all the different people who were doing these, not only the buildings, but props and the costumers were talking with me. I mean, I just was amazed at how much they, how many questions they had. And it was a great, great experience. I loved doing it. Um, and, you know, in the end, we managed to find ways to make a lot of these buildings look better. They did have to really recreate Orchard House. The one disagreement we had, and of course they win, it's their film. I wanted them to use the paint color, but Vanessa really had in mind this idea that she wanted a little bit softer. She didn't want such a strong brown because she wanted it to sort of feel a little more feminine that's fine. It, it, it's a wonderful film. I love, I love that production. Um, but so for that, they built a facade. All the other buildings, they had to kind of rework, but they never could get the roof lines right for any of them. And even for the orchard house, the one that they were recreating, they, it was too expensive. They were on quite a tight budget. So all of the roofs in that movie, every single one of them is CGI. <laughs> that's computer generated imagery. imagery yeah so i thought that was quite amusing because what i would see when i was physically there is a big blue stripe across the top of the building so that they could put their their computer image on top of that and um that was a, a big thing to try to make ireland look like New England. It's a tough call, but they did it. I thought they did a very good job. I thought the actors did a wonderful job. Um, Maya Hawke played Joe. It was her first big role. She was actually studying at Juilliard and um, she left to do that role. And now she is doing very well. <laughs> She's gone quite beyond that. But all of the actors, I won't name them all, but they, they were wonderful people, wonderful. I just, the experience was extraordinary. Now, when it comes to the Gerwig production, another extraordinary experience, but local because they wanted to be in Massachusetts for everything and a lot of it in Concord. So I mentioned to you earlier that the production designer, Jess Goncher, later told me that he had met with me 10 times to get paint colors, measurements, photographs, just a, a tremendous amount of information because they wanted to have the orchard house itself in proximity to the Lawrence family home, which is fictitious in Little Women. Um, and orchard house is located on a, a pretty busy road. Um, and it would have been difficult for them to film with uh, airplanes and cars and everything. So they wanted to find a quiet place that had quite an elaborate, amazing house on it that could be the Lawrence family home. And they found that uh, in Concord, quite a distance um, from all the noise of the road and the airplanes. And Jess had his workmen create an absolutely perfect replica of Orchard House, fully articulated all the way around, uh, not just a facade. It was the perfect paint. I had given him the paint formula um, it, it, to the point that people who know Orchard House, Concord residents, know that there's a little hill that goes up behind it. In the film, they could see that there was no hill. So they said, well, they must've done that with CGI, right, Jan? And no, they didn't. It's, that looks like Orchard House. It's exactly right. But the location didn't have a hill. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of consulting. Greta Gerwig brought all the actors there. I was fortunate to be an extra in the film so i was in oh, some scenes so i got to watch her work and watch what they how they brought this magic to bear it was just a, a great joy and they filmed one scene in the school of philosophy which is on the grounds of orchard house that was amy's school scene 
Um, and, and all of the actors were wonderful. They had lots of questions. Um, they wanted to know about the real Alcott family. I loved when Greta Gerwig said something when she was in Orchard House and saw drawings on the walls where Amy had drawn right on the walls and all the things that are just progressive signs of a family that didn't fall into the norm that Victorian families would have expected. She said, I know exactly who this family was from being inside the house, the real Orchard House. And then of course they kind of recreated it and just said something that really touched me about Orchard House. He said, it's like a jewel box. Mm. Maybe it's a little shabby on the outside, but when you open it up, it's magic in there. And Orchard House, the way he saw it in the film, and he works very closely and worked very closely. He worked, any production designer has to work very closely with the director and the writer. He said, Orchard House is the heart of the movie. They keep coming back to that house. Well, of course, I loved hearing that. <laughs> but it was it was really amazing to work with these people. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, even among people who like historical fiction, there's a little bit of, um, oh, uh, I guess a, a stickler attitude about how accurate is it? How accurate was it to the book? How accurate was it to the time? And I've even been in webinars where people who know costume would say, well, they would never have had that hairstyle of that period. And actually they would not have had that kind of blouse that actually belongs to another time. So, um, I mean, you're a historian um, and uh, you're also someone who basically lives uh, through Orchard House, the the novel and the Alcott family history. So um, how important do you think uh, historical accuracy is or, or even accuracy to the novel is to the telling and retelling of the story? And I ask that because I know in the Greta Gerwig version, some of Joe's dialogue actually comes from other Alcott novels. And, and from Louise's own diaries. Yes, and Louise's diaries, yep. yes. yes. What I think Greta was trying to do, and, and I, I think the other film versions in their own way were trying to do this as well, is keep to the heart of what they perceive to be the heart of the film, uh, I mean of the book, and because they know that Little Women itself is highly autobiographical, it's it's not completely autobiographical. It's fiction. Louisa changes names. She she has her war experience given to her father in the book, largely because it wouldn't have been a very popular book if she went that far. Women weren't supposed to do things like that. Mm. So Louisa had to think about what was going to keep the book popular enough. She wanted it to sell. She needed to make money with it. Um, but the heart of it is really how they lived, how they felt, how they related to each other. And because I think filmmakers, certainly Greta, I think, was very much this way, but I, I think Vanessa was too. And I don't know too much about the earlier ones, but I think because they knew that Louisa was taking reality and shifting it a little, but keeping the heart of her real family as the heart of the book. I feel like that's what they tried to do in their films because they knew that a film is going to be an adaptation. You cannot take any book and just put it right up there on the screen and it's exactly how the book read. And it's exactly, it just never would work, of course, we know that. So where is the heart of it? What is going to keep the viewer like the reader, connected to what was important to that author to begin with. And I think that all of them, at least the, the ones that I worked on, had that very much in the forefront of their minds. They knew who the Alcots were. They knew the marches then too on top of that. And now they have to adapt it to the screen, but they want to keep that truth that they felt. So there could be some things along the way that aren't quite perfect in the way that Nothing in life is quite perfect, but if the heart of it is there and is accurate, they think they were happy. And I think most viewers would feel that way. 
usually. This is the time we come to our break and to let our listeners know that you've been enjoying Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast where we talk about historical drama series and films as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Share this podcast. Join our historical drama community by signing up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. Now to Queen and I will go back to our conversation with Jan Turnquist, Executive Director of Orchard House, the home where Louisa May Alcott authored Little Women. Jan, let's talk about the Alcotts. They were very activist kind of family. They were members of the Transcendentalist Utopian Society. They knew writers Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, as an English major, Concord is, again, a pilgrimage for American literature. Um, so Concord is one of the literary center, centers for American literature. Uh, the Alcott's also engaged or were familiar and met John Brown, his widow, after the Harper's Ferry incident. and. This this setting is so much a part of American history. Concord, Massachusetts, and Orchard House is there. How is this community reflected in the world Louisa May Alcott created for the March family? Well, you are so correct to, to give it that um, special place. And I will add one more layer going back because the Alcotts themselves were highly aware of this, as were all these other people you've named. In Concord is the North Bridge. And in 1775, before there was a United States of America, we were still British subjects, the Redcoats marched right in to find the secret supplies, the stores that were perhaps going to fuel an army if those um, patriot rebels decided to really fight and, and try to become an independent nation. So the first fighting that, that I'm aware of where orders were given to the Minutemen, the, the rebels, to fire upon English soldiers, the first order to actually fire, not the first time English soldiers had fired upon residents of New England, but the first time residents were ordered to fire back was at the North Bridge. And so for many, that's the, the beginning of a political revolution that results in the United States. Then we go a hundred years later, roughly, to what we've come to call a cultural revolution where the writers are trying to form American literature. They're, they're still dependent in many ways on European literature and, and that's part of the culture too. But when you look at those authors that you just mentioned, certainly Ralph Waldo Emerson is one of those original thinkers that people say he's creating an American literary backdrop now. Um, and and you'd, say that, you'd, you'd say that too with other authors of that era. Nathaniel Hawthorne was doing the same thing. Now, Bronson Alcott was not a good writer, not at least in the way that these others are. He could do some good writing, but he was very self-conscious. He had not had, he was largely self-educated. He had not had the kind of background to give him confidence as, as a writer. He was a very good speaker. And they admired him, both those men that I just named, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, admired Bronson Alcott much more than you probably would realize. Um, Emerson and Alcott were probably each other's closest companion and friend, those two. Both of those men, Alcott and Emerson, were older than, than uh, Henry David Thoreau. He was young enough uh, he could have been their son if they were young fathers. I think Bronson is 18 years older than Henry, so that would have been quite a young father. But So he was almost like a son, or they were certainly, both Alcott and Emerson were mentors to him. 
and they were very strong in their transcendentalist thinking. And many people will ask, I don't really understand transcendentalism, but it's the first truly American philosophy. And in a very simplistic way, I will say, because it's the joke is, if you put two transcendental thinkers in the room together, you'll get two different definitions of what is transcendentalism. Or if you put 10 of them together, then you'll get 10 different definitions. But there are some common elements, and that is that there's, there's a belief in an oversoul. You could call that oversoul God, um, but there's some kind of an oversoul. But transcendentalists don't consider themselves a religious movement. They are a spiritual movement. So they understand the concept of an oversoul. They understand the concept of independence. You are able to be yourself regardless of what anybody else thinks of what you're doing, as long as you're not harming other people in doing it. All of this is quite American in its outlook. And that's what these, these um, thinkers were doing. And uh, I should really mention um, Margaret Fuller in that group as well. I feel like she is not appreciated enough. She was another important transcendental thinker. Louisa and her mother certainly were a part of it in the sense that they loved Bronson, but they themselves were not really actively participating in the transcendentalist thinking. Um, but I think that all of, of that backdrop for the way people were thinking of Concord, the way they were appreciating what was had taken place in Concord, even going back to the Revolution, Concordians and New Englanders in general are very proud of their role in American independence. Um, and there's a very funny piece that Louisa wrote in 1875. That's exactly 100 years. They're celebrating the centennial of that fight at the North Bridge in 1775. And here is where Louisa's feminism really stands out. She's quite a feminist on many levels. But she wrote about how the women were largely left out of that centennial celebration. And I can't go into it in depth. We don't have enough time. But if you ever get a chance, it, it's really worth reading. It's hilarious and pointed at the same time. Um, but I don't know, does that answer your question? I feel like I, I might have gone a little far. Oh, yes, because you gave us this great overview of what who was there, what um, these events and writers meant. And there's always been a push by writers to create a new movement of trying to define what is American. We talk, we've talked about the Harlem Renaissance or what we call the New Negro Movement for people in Washington, D.C., <laughs> because yeah. it really came out of Howard University. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> but there's always a time in history where we're trying to define who we are as Americans because we're so many people from so many different backgrounds. And um, the value, what values do we hold together? And I think that's the strength of Little Women as well. I agree with you. It's it's very much, and yet, as we just said, it's international too. Because it's an, it's someone once said to me, it's the quintessential American family, and I think that's a good description. But people in over fifty foreign languages read it in their own language, and they identify with it as well, which is both uh, a tribute to its universal quality. But also a reminder when you look at the roots of it that it's it's very quintessentially American too. This this striving to be independent. Look at Joe March, who is basically going against what many people think is all right to do. And I loved how Greta Gerwig sort of underlines that with the publisher. She takes a little liberty there because Louisa's actual publisher. Thomas Niles, who, who was working with her on Little Women and re requested that she write it, um, was not the kind that would have said, uh, the, the main hero has to marry. It'll spoil the book if she doesn't. Thomas Niles didn't say that. Another publisher had said that to Louisa. But Thomas Niles did think that that Joe had to marry. He was just nicer about it. Yeah. <laughs> so she, Greta kind of combines a little of that, but she's still getting the flavor that men thought and, and girls thought it too. 
if the heroine doesn't marry, that's just horrible. What kind of a fate is that? The poor girl. Louisa really wanted Joe March to be a literary spinster, as she was. And, and she wanted young women to know that while marriage could be wonderful, you are not less than anybody else if you never marry. And she was asked to write an article about spinsterhood. And she did. And she said she put in all the happy, useful spinsters she knew. And then she entitled the book, I mean, the article, Happy Women. Ah, <laughs> I want to find that. Yeah, we got to find that one. <laughs> hey, she, she created Meg. What more do you want? <laughs> right. <laughs> but really, it's amazing how both things are true. It is quintessentially American, this whole thrust for independence, finding your own agency, going for it. That's pretty American, but others appreciate it too in whatever culture they are in and in whatever language they're reading it in. So another iconic figure in Little Women is Marmee, and she's based on Abigail Alcott, whom you um, informed me was known as Abba, and um, but mainly and as Marmee. Marmee was really by her girls, yes. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like she was a pretty progressive feminist in her own right. Could you tell us a little bit more about her and what influence she had on Louisa and, and her um, sisters as this progressive mother? She had a tremendous influence on them. You're right. She was an independent thinker. She lost her mother at a very young age. And I think partially, and, and she was very, very close to her sibling Samuel, Sam May, um, who was understanding of her personality. And I think that the fact that she sort of felt, I believe, that she had to sort of forge her own way. She didn't have a mother to guide her. Um, and she wanted education. And she was also able to study with, you know, privately, not in the school. They didn't have college for women in those days, but she did a lot of study that in her world would have been as close to a college education as she could manage. Sam was very helpful. And that was even true when they were very little. He was, he was that kind of a brother right along. He understood his sister wanted to learn and he was always helping her. Um, with that, and then that continued as adults as well. So she was already a pretty independent thinker. Um, and she met Bronson Olcott when she was caring for Sam's wife, who had just given birth. They lived in Brooklyn, Connecticut at that time. And there had been a little convention that Samuel May had held in Connecticut talking about the deplorable state of education. He thought that these schools were not up to par. He was very concerned about that. And he had heard about a very young school teacher who was progressive and innovative and asked him to come and visit and speak with him. That progressive educator was a young Bronson Olcott who was teaching young children at that time. When Mr. Alcott arrived at the house, Sam May was away. And you know how it is, you get a letter and if you come, maybe it's not like the telephone where you can say, oh, well, I'll be gone next Thursday. Can you come Friday instead or something? So Mrs. Well, Miss May was receiving the visitor because her sister-in-law had given birth. She was indisposed. She was in the upper chamber. So Abba is going to be sort of playing hostess to this young man. And I think they just hit it off right away. And I think that is part of what explains their great attraction to each other. But it also explains some of how Mrs. Alcott was able to keep rising in her own life to the level of idealism that she had. She was very idealistic too, but she had to be practical because the woman kind of has to do that. If you've got to get the cooking done, you've got to get everything. You're giving birth. 
you know, so she was able to bridge both worlds very well, which was quite an art form <laughs> for her to, to um, master. Mr. Alcott continued to inspire her because of his idealism, but she had to have been frustrated at times that the money wasn't flowing in the way it could have. And so she would even take that on. She would take in laundry. She would take in sewing. She would take in borders while she's also raising these children and encouraging her daughters to find their own souls, to find their own sense of agency, to be who they were deep down. She was remarkable on every level in my, in my book, just an amazing woman. And she herself was a very fine writer. If you read some of her journal entries, she just never had a spare moment to publish anything. But I think Louisa was highly influenced with her mother's writing, both parents encouraging Louisa to write. But Mrs. Alcott was a wonderful writer, and I, I somehow think that might have been quite an influence on Louisa. Let's talk about you and Louisa, <laughs> because <laughs> you, you're an interpreter at Orchard House. You um, enact Louisa May Alcott's life. Um, so how do you approach bringing Louisa May Alcott to life? Do you sort of prepare yourself for that role? How do you make that connection with the visitors today at Orchard House, especially now that we're in this digital age? It's the 21st century. We're almost like 200 years later. We're approaching that. How much do you adapt to contemporary times? Well, first of all, I should make it clear, I don't do any portrayals at Orchard House. We're, we're just far too busy, and and my role as executive director doesn't allow me that, um, shall we say, luxury of time. However, before I was director, I did. I was actually asked to do this because of um, I was a guide early on at Orchard House, and um, it's, it evolved really from that experience. I was asked to portray Louisa. And my approach was to find the parts of her personality that were really congruent with me and focus there and then just tell her story from sort of that place, if that makes sense. In other words, I, nothing that I would talk about as Louisa was my own conjecture. I was going by things she had written and and the experiences that she had had and just acting as if she's now able to stand there and tell you. So it's really kind of simple. I was thrilled and, and quite surprised that it was so effective for a lot of people. I mean, there were people who just, one biographer really, took me completely by surprise and just gave me the biggest thrill of all. Madeline Stern, who wrote an early biography of Louise's life, her scholarship was impeccable. She and her partner, Leona Rustenberg, were being honored at the University of Connecticut for their lifetime of scholarship. And one of the people who was putting that event together, it was going to be a dinner and they were presenting awards to them had seen me do the Louisa and thought this would be a, a wonderful dinner. Uh, it was really going to be during dessert. So I actually got to have dinner with Leona and, and Madeline, and I was in complete awe. I couldn't believe I was sitting at a table with them because I had read Leona's Louisa May Alcott, A Biography. That's the name of the book she wrote in 1950. But it's a wonderful book. It doesn't feel dated at all. Um, and I just was in awe. And I knew that um, because of the conversation, uh, I would be slipping out to prepare to come back during dessert and do this performance, and that they would probably be gone because Madeline had mentioned. In fact, she was kind enough to say, "We we're driving back to New York. We didn't. They don't like to fly. Didn't like to fly." So they had a car that was coming for them at a particular time. And so she said, as soon as the performance is over, we're going to slip out and we don't want you to think that we are trying to avoid you or didn't want, you know, she was very kind to say that to me. So I um, slipped out, I put on the outfit, I 
came out. I did my performance. I was really nervous to do it. And afterward, you know, you don't want to linger uh, in a in a setting like that because it's a, a very prescribed, you know, they have all these things to do. Sometimes I've been able to stay and answer questions in character. But I left immediately after the performance. It's so nice. People are clapping, you know. And I go heading right out to this little room where they have for me to change. And standing right there at the elevator waiting to go were Louisa, I mean, <laughs> Madeline and Leona. And they turned to me and Madeline said, that was wonderful. You are Louisa May Alcott. Louisa would have loved this. I was just floored and thrilled. So it still surprises me that people sometimes can feel like they've met Louisa because I don't feel that way at all. I, I just feel like it's interesting and I love doing it and I love connecting with the people. But I never, what the funniest thing I ever had said to me after performance was, do you channel her? <laughs> I was thinking that. Yeah. Do you own a Ouija board? <laughs> yeah. And I just, nothing could be further from how I think of it. It's just not like that at all. I know a lot about her life. I think she had a fascinating life. I feel like I'm simply taking what I know about her life and sharing it the same way I'm sharing with you right now. I'm talking about things I know. I know about her life. If she were alive, she could talk about her life, but she's not alive, so I get to do it. So it's it's just been a lot of fun. But where I do it is is not inside Orchard House. My role there is so different. We're all about preservation and showing the house and making sure all the staff members, and I, I honestly have to say this, I say it a lot, but it's so true. I really think we have the best staff anywhere. They are passionate, they really learn the material, they love sharing it. That's what's important at Orchard House. It's, it's not about something I would portray. Um, but when I've had a chance to do it, and, and I've had some amazing opportunities, I did it in front of Laura Bush, I did it in front of her mother because both mother and daughter love Little Women so much. I've met the Empress of Japan because of it. I've done the performance in Japan. I just can't believe how lucky I've been because of portraying Louise May Alcott. But my day job, so to speak, is not doing that. That's, that's very much the frosting on the cake for me. Well, we can feel the enthusiasm you have for not only Louisa, but Orchard House. So how can people who um, are interested in Orchard House, how can they connect with Orchard House? Well, our website is a great place to start. Of course, I hope they can come to visit. Um, I'm always longing to do a little bit more. That's why I made a, a little small, very short documentary about the house. Um, people might like to watch that. Um, I would love to find more ways for the people who love Little Women, whether they've been to Orchard House or not, to write and tell me their stories. Some of the stories that I have been privileged to hear or that staff members have heard, have heard from people are beyond powerful. I mean, powerful is the word I use, but it seems like there should be a stronger word. Because for example, I'll just give you one right now. Uh, recently, a woman had tears in her eyes standing at Louisa's desk and later explained that she had been through a very, very, very difficult hospitalization. I think her life was truly threatened. And she was watching the Greta Gerwig film of Little Women in her hospital room over and over. She says at the point that her oncologist came in and said, I'm going to um, call in a psychiatrist uh, consult here because I noticed you've been watching this movie. At that point, she had watched it over 30 times, three zero, over 30 times. And he was worried, Why, what, what's happened to this woman? She kind of set him straight right away. She said, you don't understand. The women in this film, the March family, are based on real people. And I'm getting strength from them. And she didn't have the stamina to be reading at that point, but she could watch. And 
she said, when I get out of this hospital, I'm going to that house where that book was written. I'm going to stand in those rooms. And then I guess to be right there in front of the desk, as you expressed earlier, it's powerful. You just, you realize I'm there. This is where she sat. And a, another visitor, oh, I wish I could tell you this whole story. There's just not time, but a young woman, teenage girl, whose goal, I think, is really to be a writer and, and just took so much encouragement from Louisa. When she stood in front of that desk, there are flowers painted above it. You'll remember those, May painted those flowers. She said she was looking at those flowers right above that desk and she felt that she was looking into the eyes of Louisa because she knew Louisa had looked at that painting so oh. often. These stories, there are many more, but it just gives you the flavor of the impact that the house has on people and I love hearing these stories. I think it's important to hear these stories because they are part of the house too. I feel that the Alcotts started something and really in some ways there were some wonderful things that happened in that very house way before the Alcotts time. But people know about the Alcotts, that's why they come. So I will say the Alcott legacy of kindness and caring and struggle but persevering not letting the struggle get the best of you, no matter how hard it is, you keep going, you keep trying. That legacy is passed on in my staff today, how they are, I, I'm telling you, it, it's awe-inspiring to me. Yesterday, we were so busy with visitors. I was giving tours, we were all giving tours, and we had to keep it going, and we had people in this room and this room, and people just kept moving. A man from Britain said in his wonderful accent, I don't know how you people do it. Everybody was in the right place. Everybody knew the right thing to say. They did the thing just like a clockwork and then the next room and we could focus on the rooms, but I had to stop and focus on this amazing thing that was going on. Well, that's the staff. That's an amazing staff. And yet there are these stories, these wonderful stories that are part of the house too, because when people come, even if they don't get to tell us, sometimes we just feel it from the look in their eyes, the big smiles, the tears. <laughs> That's powerful for us. We receive that. And no matter how busy or stressful it sometimes can be, I think the reason we don't burn out is because of that interplay. There's a nice, tiny community that is created in that group as they go through the house. And we get to be part of it. And it, it's not a long-standing community, they leave but then we get to have another little community. And that sense of community and, and connection is powerful in that house. Jan, this is the part of our podcast we call our lightning round. So I'm going to kick it off with the first question, first of three. If you could travel back in time, maybe it's someplace in some time other than Orchard House, <laughs> where would you visit and why? That's such a hard question. I used to dream of time travel when I was a little girl, I really wanted to do that. But I never limited it to one place or time. Um, I do think that because I've lived in New England so long now, much longer than I lived anywhere else, and because I know that I have ancestors who came to New England, um, I actually, both sides of my family go back, somebody did genealogy, to, to the Mayflower. So I think I might go back to that time and maybe just experience what those ancestors must have experienced. I, I can't quite imagine it. You know, even reading and, and trying to picture it, you know it's, it's going to be a very different experience. So I guess I'd want to try to experience what they 
felt and saw. Yeah, we've had other guests who have that curiosity about going back to a time of their ancestors to experience life as their ancestors experienced it. Um, and FYI, Michonne and I also have roots in New England. So we'll, we'll talk about after the podcast. <laughs> if you could be a character in one of Louisa May Alcott's stories, doesn't have to be Little Women, who would you be? But I, I, it would be Little Women and it would be Joe. I, I just, I would love to, if, if I'm going to just really become a character, I just love her kind of iconoclastic, bold, strong, you know, and sort of the parts where she'd think, oh no, you know, <laughs> I have a lot of those moments too. Where, oh, how could I, I identify with her. Yeah, those, those foot and mouth moments from Joe. <laughs> exactly. Well, Jan, can I follow that up? You've ha- you had an extra role you mentioned in the um, 2019 film, or what oh. was it? Who were you? Did they give you any? No, any I wasn't. Kind of you know, it's funny. We we say when you're uh, in that position, you're called an extra. Do you know what the film people call you? Background. <laughs> <laughs> so I was background you you get the costume you're you're told where to stand and how to be and and now any film i see i when they have huge crowd scenes and everything i think oh my word look at all those background people and they really are background they're they're not supposed to call attention to themselves they're just supposed to be there so i didn't get any wool no i was background <laughs> but there's a really funny story um for me uh, I during the wedding scene. Now I'm talking about the Gerwig film, um, and it's outdoors. And um, the only place you see me that you could ever, ever spot me in the film, by the way, is after the wedding is over when they're dancing, and I'm in the background clapping and smiling and laughing, watching the dancers. <laughs> but before that, I was in the grouping that was like wedding guests. We were sitting there, and um, if your background, you are told you do not speak to the actors. You do not have your cell phone on set. I mean, they're very strict about that. And don't, you don't speak to the actors because you don't want to throw them off, right? So of course, I understood, no, don't you do that. And then there's this big break and all of us are just sitting there waiting. And Laura Dern, who with whom I had spoken quite a few times because she was playing Marmy and she had a lot of questions. I had also spoken with all four of the girls. They're all there, but they're not looking at the background people either really but for some reason i'm just sitting there laura looked over and recognized me even though i'm wearing this big bonnet and you know she recognized me and she was so surprised because we had spent as i say kind of a lot of time together she's over on the side she sees me over here in the middle and she laura moves very quickly she she said jan like that and came sort of loping over (laughs) Then the four girls heard her and now they came over. So in that split second, I'm thinking, oh no, I, I can't speak to them. Well, but I, I can't not speak to them. So it was very brief. It was very brief, but it was a wonderful, fun moment. I, and then of course it was, like I say, brief. So now I'm sitting down again and the other background people are kind of looking at me. (laughs) What? Yeah. What's your deal? (laughs) But it was such a privilege to be able to be in that company, to just to watch how it all worked. I just loved it. I'll be looking for you when I watch it again. <laughs> you probably won't spot me, but like I say, cap it, clapping, swaying and smiling. <laughs> we talk about time capsules as well. What three items would you put in your time capsule that represent the times you've lived through? Well, I told you earlier, my grandmother gave me this doll. I think it might've been my first doll. I happened to name her Amy and I was really too young at that point. I didn't know anything about Amy March and Little Women, but I had my Amy doll. And I think that it tied in with a lot of other childhood things that it's just too long to, to go into in this broadcast. But it was a very important doll that connected to a lot of parts of my life. Even when I grew up beyond that doll, there was a lot of connection. 
and that's just sort of a, I know a hard thing to understand when you don't tell the detail, but it was, it was a very important doll. So I thought, well, I'll put that in there because it's significant to a huge portion of my life. And then the middle section, um, I guess I'm letting that represent my family life. Um, my, my children gave me a little, you know, how they, they sometimes give you these absolutely hyperbolic kind of flattering gifts. You know, you, I know they didn't really necessarily think this a lot of the time, but it says world's best mom. And it's a little sort of a leather thing and that you can keep inside your purse to put extra things in. And it's colorful too. It's, even though it's leather, it's kind of colorful and it says world's best mom. And I loved it and I still have it and it's still in my purse. And then um, the last thing I decided has to be a copy of Little Women because I realize now that I have spent more years of my life, if you look at my total lifespan so far, far more of my lifespan has been spent inside Orchard House than anywhere else because I was a guide there, because then I was what they called the living history coordinator. I was the educational coordinator, the executive director. And I love it there. So it's, I'm not in any way complaining, but I'm just saying it's really taken up a lot of my life. And that book, of course, is at the core. So I think I'd have to put that in. Terrific. Well, thank you, Jan, for having this conversation with us about Orchard House. This has been a real treat for us um, to learn more about the Alcotts and Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. We look forward to seeing you in person at Orchard House at some time. So thank you so much for joining us on the Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure for me. We hope our podcast has inspired you to visit Orchard House. More information is available on their website at louisamayalcott.org. We invite you to share this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters with someone you know who would enjoy this conversation. Subscribe to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and additional resources related to this conversation. Click on the webpage link to shop the Michon Boston Group's affiliate bookstore on bookshop.org, where you'll find titles related to our conversation and past episodes. Your book purchases support independent booksellers, and a small commission supports the historical drama with the Boston Sisters podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. You can write us at podcast at michonbostongroup.com. Like and share historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who binge on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michon Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michon Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.